Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. I am Asa. And I'm Allison. And in this, our 60th episode, we'll be traveling to a European country we surprisingly haven't visited yet, and that country is Poland. That's right, today we'll be looking at Frédéric Chopin and his scherzo number one. Chopin was born in the Polish town of Zylizwa Wola in 1810. However, his father was actually from France. And soon after his birth, the Chopin family moved to Warsaw. Chopin's family was of the upper middle class, which made it actually very easy for him to access the great music in salons and also to access music lessons. By 1818, it was evident that the little Chopin was a prodigy at the piano, and he began performing in those salons that he was visiting. He also began writing his own pieces, and for the record, he's just four years behind Mozart, who was the, of course, four-year-old prodigy instead of eight-year-old. Now, Chopin's early lessons focused on the classic music of Bach and Mozart. Apparently, he also got a good deal of teaching in the art of improvisation, which really shines through in some of his more florid compositions that sound almost quasi-improvisatory. In spite of his musical prowess and having the option to devote himself fully to the musical life, Chopin instead chose a life of full education. In 1823, he enrolled in the Warsaw Lyceum, where in addition to honing his musical skills, he acquired knowledge in many different disciplines, thus making him one of the more fully educated romantic composers. However, his output at this time was still very good. He gained international acclaim, even catching the eye, or ear rather, of Robert Schumann, who proclaimed him, quote, a genius. During his summer vacations, Chopin had the chance to spend time in grand country estates with friends. Now, out in the Polish countryside, he became acquainted with the folk songs of his nation, and by now our listeners should know what that means. His music took on a very nationalist flair. Now, however much he loved his native Poland, Chopin also wished to travel and promote himself abroad. So, in 1830, he left Poland for the ultimate music town, Vienna. But curiously, he didn't stay there very long, and in less than a year, he moved, well, to the other ultimate music town, Paris, his father's homeland. And of course, his fantastic playing instantly won him over with the Parisians, and he easily acquired a full studio of piano students. Chopin's greatness ensured that he was no starving artist. That's not to say he didn't have troubles, though. He suffered from tuberculosis for most of his life, as it was an incurable disease back then. His constant sickness probably weighed heavily on him and caused him to have a rather sour personality, and this was actually a well-known fact all across Europe. Franz Liszt apparently said, quote, Chopin is all sadness. And in contrast to our mighty piano rock idol Liszt, who was born for the spotlight, Chopin actually hated performing. He was also very difficult to deal with in the fact that he was incredibly self-centered. He took this to extremes in some instances, as he apparently disliked the Germans as well as being an anti-Semite, and avoided doing business with either. This is actually ironic, as during World War II, Chopin's music was banned by the Nazis due to his Polish nationalist nature, whereas other known anti-Semitic composers, like Wagner, were actively promoted. 
Even more interesting, in the 2002 movie The Pianist, a Jewish pianist that was living in the Warsaw Ghetto plays Chopin's music for a Nazi soldier who was coming to arrest him. Now, this soldier is so moved by the performance that he actually allows the pianist to hide and even supplies him with food. So in this case, the feeling behind the art has transcended the feelings of the artist. In the 1840s, Chopin sparked a relationship with a French writer, Aurore Dudevant, who signed her works with her nom de plume, Georges Sand. And in the face of illness, this relationship with Sand gave Chopin a new enthusiasm, making this one of his most prolific compositional eras. Though strong, this relationship only lasted for nine years. It ended badly, with Chopin ill and depressed, and so he took a vacation. He spent the summer of 1848 in England, and he actually hardly did any composing at all. The climate of England didn't do any wonders for himself either, and when he finally returned to Paris, he was weak and still depressed. So he summoned his sister to come take care of him, which she did because she was loving and sweet. However, word soon got out in Paris that the miraculous Chopin was dying, and soon everyone who was anyone started coming to visit and pay their respects. Chopin finally died of tuberculosis complications in 1849 at the age of 40. So now let's look at his scherzo number one. This freestanding piano work was written in 1831, soon after he had settled down in Paris. It's a very brillante sounding work that was able to show off Chopin's great virtuosity. Now recall he didn't really like performing, but he also had a very high opinion of himself. So if he was going to perform, by golly, it was going to knock people's socks off. <laughs> so we've talked about the scherzo form before, but with this piece, we can talk more in terms of the scherzo as a genre. So we've looked at scherzos as they fit into larger multi-movement works like quartets or symphonies, and in these instances, the composer usually uses the scherzo as a third movement to offset a slow or somber second movement. However, here, Chopin has chosen to write a singular piece as a scherzo. And that's kind of interesting because on the whole, the term scherzo really tells us little about how the piece should really flow, so essentially Chopin was able to write the piece however he wanted. Now, the translation of scherzo means joke, so most pieces titled scherzo are fast-paced, jaunty, and have unexpected elements. They're also usually on the more cheery side of things. Chopin, however, has written a very dramatic and somber scherzo. What's the joke in this piece? Maybe that's the joke! <laughs> well, we'll see by the end. <laughs> what this work does follow is the traditional ABA form that most symphonic-style scherzos exhibit. Our A section that we hear at the beginning and end is fast and virtuosic, and just listening to it tells you that the pianist is really using all ten fingers at full force. When the A section returns at the end of the piece, it's finished off with a 30-second coda that sounds like it has double the notes of the rest of the entire piece. Our B section is much sweeter sounding than the A section, taking on a sound that is more like a German lead or perhaps a lullaby. 
And this character is fitting because Chopin is actually quoting a Polish Christmas song titled Lulejej Jezunu, translated to Lule Baby Jesus. While the B section has an obvious and expressive melody, it's difficult to pick out any really melodic material in the A section, which could actually present some difficulties in a performance interpretation. But with a deeper listening, you can identify through the mass of notes a few melodic voices. For example, listen to only the highest notes at the end of each of the runs in this section. When you start to filter out the rest of the moving notes, which are mainly arpeggiated, you actually start to hear the jaunty and lilting accents that should be exaggerated in this joking 3-4 time signature. Here's that excerpt again to get you more in tune with the underlying rhythm. As we go on in this A section, Chopin does take a brief hiatus from the constant notes, and we get a little bit of back and forth snippets from the right hand and the left hand voices. Finally, we even get a semblance of a real melody with longer notes in the right hand and moving notes in the left. What's really striking about this A section, though, is how even though we have a mass of notes constantly coming at us, we do have a very strong sense of what's going on harmonically. If we think just about what's happening at the beginning and end of a block of notes, we understand that the whole block is really outlining all of the possible renditions of a given chord. For example, Chopin gives us a passage that has some sequencing in it. While the sequence itself is very busy, we do get a clear sense that each time it's repeated, it could have just been written as one solid chord in a modulation. And this goes back to what we talked about, of isolating just a few select notes to listen to for a melody. And that brings up the fact that there are many good ways to listen to this work. You can choose to find specific things to hone in on, and you'll see the basic or unadorned idea Chopin was trying to convey. Or, you can listen to every note in mass and appreciate the exquisite flourishes that Chopin overlaid onto his music. And now we arrive at the B section. We mentioned that it takes its melody from a Polish Christmas song, and there's really nothing terribly unique about how Chopin treats the melody. He does, however, sit the melody on the inside of the accompaniment, with little chords being played both higher and lower than the melody. This is an interesting technique that we don't usually hear outside of piano works. In an orchestral setting, having the melody played by the inner voices rather than the extreme highs or lows often leads to it being hard to pick out, but on the piano, and especially in this light setting Chopin has devised, the melody clearly shines through. This whole B section is pretty tame until the end. We're happily puttering along in B major, and this section has gotten repetitive enough that we kind of think we know all of Chopin's modulations. However, he throws in a new modulation that he hasn't used before, and it takes us in a measure from B major to D major. <laughs> <laughs> 
So this is modulating to the third of the key, and this is quite uncommon because it's just not a harmonic progression that our ears are used to hearing. Then, in the next measure, Chopin takes us to F-sharp minor, which is just a fifth away from B minor, the key of the returning A section. This A section is basically a repeat of the first A section, with the addition of the little coda at the end that we've already mentioned. And throughout this section, Chopin continues to have many voices speaking at once. At times, the right hand is playing in two voices on alternating eighth note subdivision, one voice playing normal chords in thirds, and the other voice playing downward moving chromatic lines. It's difficult to parse out at this tempo, but again, as you listen many times, you can hone in on the harmonic progression or the melodic chromatic line. Finally, the final chords of this piece are a unique choice for a work that's this fiery. While the first pair in this little passage is a traditional 5 to 1, the rest are actually 4 to 1. And it's a small difference, but it sets Chopin apart from other composers. For example, Beethoven loved a good 5 to 1 progression at the end of his works. But putting in this 4 to 1 progression gives the listeners a hint that this piece is no Beethoven work. It's pure Polish French Romanticism. Also, the 4 to 1 cadence is sometimes referred to as the Amen cadence, because in many old religious works, it was sung at the end of the congregation song Amen. Think of the ending to Handel's Hallelujah Chorus. It's very reasonable to assume this was a very conscious decision by Chopin to use this cadence with religious connotations, due to his quotation of the Polish Christmas song earlier. It helps connect the fierce outer sections to the inner section in a cheeky way, perhaps as though this final cadence is the punchline to Chopin's scherzo. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. If you enjoy what we do here, please follow us on Facebook, like and subscribe to us, subscribe and rate on Google Play and iTunes, and drop us an email at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. For the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. The Scherzo Number no. 1 was performed by Carmelo Mancione. You can subscribe, rate, and review The Coffeehouse on iTunes or Google Play. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram for episode updates. You can email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.